Ready graphics? Ready theme? Hi, I'm Jesse Mullins. And I'm Lauren Milberger. And this is FYI, the Murphy Brown Podcast. Brown arrives in her lilac shepherdess glory. Some guy! This episode is chaos. They sort of flipped the gender norms. It is prime elevator day. And on today's episode, we'll be talking about season two, episode 26, Going to the Chapel, part two. Hello! Hello, everyone. What a lovely we, day to close up a season. We made it! We did it! Looks like we made it! <laughs> 27 episodes. Holy <laughs> What? What a number. I, I hope that people understand that, like, 27 episodes of a sitcom for 1990 was not a usual thing. No, it wasn't like back when, oh, remember they all had 22 episodes, even if it wasn't an, an hour long show. Like, no, this is a lot even for when people had more episodes. Yeah, like like maybe a couple did like 24, but like 22 is kind of like the sweet spot. Uh huh. Maybe 25, maybe 25, right? Yeah. Because technically the hour episodes count as two episodes in the contract. Mm -hmm. But 27. And now like, this is obviously two parts. So we could say this is part two of episode 26, but it is technically, as you said, episode 27. Yeah. I mean, and also even the episode that, like, an hour episode that airs as an hour is technically considered two episodes because a series is contracted for the number of half hours. Mm -hmm. I mean, if it's a half hour sitcom. Yeah, so this aired May 21st, 1990, and is once again written by Diane and Corby. And starts with the Entertainment Tonight theme song. Wow. What, what, like, it just, I, I was transported. This show meant so much to me at this time. I was obsessed. Obsessed. I think that some people may not either remember or do remember or don't know that, like, it was a entertainment, like, wasteland. There was no E yet. Mm-hmm. You had to wait until 7.30 or whatever, you know, the syndicated decide to show it. It was usually uh, 7.30. 6.30 Central. Oh, sorry, Central. I forgot about Central. But, but literally, as you said that, I was like, before you said the time, I was like, it was always at 6.30. Like, I knew exactly what time. With Mary Hart and John Tesh. And it was, oh. I mean, uh, I would, it was my favorite thing. Well, and this is Lisa Gibbons, which is like, but Mary Hart. Mary Hart was Mary Hart. the literal heart of the show. Oh, look where you went. Oh. Look where we went. I was trying to remember, and I'm pretty sure that Lisa Gibbons was like fill-in for Mary Hart and weekend host, mm -hmm. I believe. Mm -hmm. I may be remembering this this wrong. But I was interested to check that the show started in 1981. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. This is the only time where they used sort of a creative way to do a previously on, which I thought was really great. I literally wrote the PR tour, what a way to do a previously on without doing a previously on. It was so good. Mm -hmm. I love that they they fit it in like E.T. has the footage from the things that we saw. Yes, right? <laughs> I know. It's so, it's so clever because you it's a wink to the audience. Like we all know that obviously E.T. doesn't have the footage from these moments, but it's such a clever way to be like previously on Murphy Brown. But it's so it's so clever. It really tickled yeah. me. <laughs> oh, I realize that we're kind of going right into it, but I want to get into the habit of reminding people at the beginning, at the top of our episodes, that you can oh, watch yeah. this episode and follow along with us now. Mm -hmm. 
we have a link on our, our the main page of our website, which is murphybrownpod.com, so check that out. Obviously, we're going to still do the episodes as if you haven't just seen it, but we definitely encourage you to watch the episode and then follow along with us. In fact, stop everything. Go click that link. We will wait. We'll wait. It's called the pause button. Welcome back. Oh my gosh, look, you're back. Oh, thank you for coming back. Oh, oh we're so that's glad so nice. Okay, so back. now that we're caught up. Yeah. So I guess we're going into the episode. Let's do it. Here's one thing I wanted to ask you. Mm. Do you think that when Corky is saying, oh, he's just, he's just the, he's just the man of my dreams. Does she come across as not seeming genuine when she says that? Or is that just me because I know what happened? I think it's a little of both. I think, I think Faith is playing the confusion that she's in. What I'm reading from that is that Corky is excited to be in the middle of this, excited about this interview and the like everything she's always dreamed mm-hmm. of. But I also think that that confusion is currently playing in the back of her mind. So I think that the insincerity is not necessarily that she's lying, but that she is, these are obviously interviews from before she ran off with Eldon. <laughs> yes, no. And the thing is that I, I like that. I like yeah. that, that that's how Faith is playing it. I just wanted to be sure if I was reading it that way. Well, it also reminds me of when I watch like, reality television dating shows that one of the things that Mm -hmm. because my husband always ends up watching it with me because he can't help himself and when he's like why do you think xyz i'm like look at the the lead or whoever's talking at the moment can't say specifics about why they care about this person it's not gonna work anytime that either the person is talking about what the other person Mm. does for them or can't name something specific that that they love about the other person that is about that person, that's a red flag. And I think that's something that's happening in these interviews with Corky that we see is that she can't, she can't say a specific, she's just supposed to be happy. So she is. Yes. Which, which I think plays into what this episode Mm -hmm. is saying, right? Like on paper, this should be Corky's dream, but Corky has now grown up. And so this is no longer her dream. It makes me feel like how I think a lot of us actor little baby actors would practice our acceptance speeches in uh, walking around our home or in a mirror. I feel like Corky practiced (laughs) all the things she would say when she's in love with the man she's meant to be. And so she's living this like fantasy that she's been living her entire life. But as a child, you don't know what those things are. And so she's just, she's doing the thing that she's practiced. She's always going to do when she's happy and in love and everything's going right. Unfortunately, as an adult, she can't fill the space. Oh, what a great way to say it. I love that. I also find it funny that when Lisa Gibbons is like, we have been following the the romance between Corky Sherwood and her childhood friend. All two weeks of it. <laughs> All two they weeks are, of it. because They're fast. That's obviously what we care about. <laughs> yes. It's a nice reminder for us sometimes where their status in pop culture in the Murphy Brown world. Yes. Corky Sherwood is supposed to be this level of pop Totally, culture. totally, yes. And so that's a wonderful reminder of like, oh, this whirlwind of two weeks, like everybody's watching it. She's marrying some guy. Some guy. Some guy. Some non-famous America's guy. princess. <laughs> and what's also great is that this also leads into the actual episode as they take a break and the phone rings and it's Frank. And then John Tesh goes, Tesh here. <laughs> you don't understand. Like John Tesh was like such a stud back then. I mean, he wasn't my type, oh, but yeah. like... What is he, like 6'4", chiseled well, also, looks. How old were you for him to be your type? I'm sorry. You know what I mean? But you can Well, he wasn't my type. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> like, I hope not. 
child. (laughs) (laughs) This episode is chaos already. But I have to say, do you ever do something like, I used to be obsessed with Pirates of Penzance, and it's how I started loving Kevin Klein, and then watching... Excuse me, why have we never talked about the fact that I own both versions, the stage (laughs) and the film, and I am... Obviously, Angela Lansbury, but like, well, of course, my best friend and I, to this day, that is our special thing is Pirates of Penzance. But like going back as an adult and watching the, you know, the cat scene. What's the song called? I haven't seen it in forever. But, you know, when with cat like track. Yeah. When they're bouncing up and down in the hot pants. And I went, oh, no, literally Kevin Klein's Gumby limbs, <sighs> what he does with his legs and knees. Like I, I watch it and my knees hurt. He's incredible. When during the uh, the paradox, when he just like squats and then crosses his own leg over his already squatted leg it's the man is gumby it's crazy but like i watched this in kindergarten Uh and like i'm the kind of person that like probably didn't really hit puberty until like college you know what i mean like i sure i recently discovered that i'm demisexual like i'm on the asexual scale so like but so it cracks me up that like i'm not (laughs) it's not really my thing but i was in kindergarten and i looked back and i went oh Oh, yeah, I've always been heterosexual. Okay. All right. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah, I, I had I had the opposite in adulthood looking back at me like, oh, always bisexual. <laughs> <laughs> oh, right, right. The concept of a of quote unquote girl crush was really a really terrible thing to teach children. We should have just said, you have a crush? Great. <laughs> Sexuality is a spectrum. And Imagine whatever you enjoy. But yeah, no those those boys, those those are strapping gents in Pirates of Penzance. Oh yes, yes, yes they are. Mm-hmm. Tesh here. Anyway, so so before I realized that they had been on a date, I wrote down Frank is is this close to a Me Too lawsuit. <laughs> Every day. Every day, every day, Frank. Um, But then when I realized they had actually been on a date, I was like, okay, he's following up. Not in a good way, but he's just following up on the date. He's not harassing her that much. He's not a creep. He's just not good at it. He's not good at it. But you know what I realized in this scene? And I think we've sort of touched on this before. Is I think that Frank is trying to masquerade in this sort of form of toxic masculinity that he thinks that women want. But he mm-hmm. is actually a little gooey little puffball. And if he yes. just showed people how sensitive he is and who he really is, uh-huh. he would be happy and get a woman. Which is interesting in contrast to Murphy, who supposedly has these stereotypical non-feminine, I'm using air quotes, what's wrong with me? You know, so-called you know, non-feminine traits. And is being who she is, but the world is like, oh no, well that's that's a male trait that you're doing, right? And so I was like, that's really interesting, right? Like they sort of flipped yeah, the gender think, norms, so to speak. Yeah, I think that's one of my favorite things about their relationship. I will say two things. One, I support you on this Skype call that we are on using your air quotes. Thank you. Because let's remember, when you smile while recording, we can hear yes. your smile. I could hear your your air quotes because you were using them. They were Thank in you. your voice. I elevate. But the other thing I want to say is that the thing I find interesting about Frank as he, like, cosplays John Tesh <laughs> is that he often brings his sensitivity and vulnerability 
like we see later, in as like a last resort or a final tactic. Oh, interesting. And if he could just swing that at the to the yeah. forefront, <laughs> like, like I, I think it would work much better. And we see things like later where, you know, in flashbacks that like his mother buys him a leather jacket. He's like, it's not a cool leather jacket. It doesn't have, you know, uh, straps and this, you know. I, I, I really think that he thinks he's being, air quotes, a man by doing this stuff. Well, the problem is, is that the women he's actually interested in are not the women who will be impressed by that. Exactly. He goes, I mean, Frank is an equal opportunity employer, but the person that he actually, the type of woman he actually truly gets swooned over are the ones that don't want that type of guy. My favorite partnership that I've seen Frank have is in a flashback when he meets this like kind of really cool chill woman in a voting booth. Like it's only one episode and it's one scene and it's a flashback and I was like, oh, I wish he would meet her again. Like I, and maybe it's just the actors had really good chemistry, but like, I was like, oh, this is like the perfect person for Frank. But anyway. Honestly, Frank needs a Doris. Don't we, don't we all need a Doris? <laughs> we all need a Doris. So Frank is, is, you know, not doing so well getting a date for the wedding. And neither is, is Miles. He's talking to someone named Terry, which is funny to me because the last, I think, actress who played his love interest was Terry Hatcher. But <laughs> it might just be a coincidence. Uh -huh. And she can't go to the wedding because she, she has to flea dip her cat. She can't mm. go to the, the, the event of the season that was planned in a week. <laughs> yeah, having never flea dipped a cat, nor know if that's still a thing yeah. that is done, I... I cannot speak on, uh, because hey, pet procedures could could take a lot of time. I do get the impression that that is a ridiculous statement. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's definitely what's happening. So I'm like, what did Miles do? That like, even someone was like, oh yeah, sure. Why don't I just go to like this huge celebrity event? Maybe we'll, maybe I'll have fun. She must like really, really, really hate it. But again, we've seen Miles also sort of pump up his so-called masculinity to look away uh, that's not him either. So who knows how he acted on this date? I fully believe that when we don't see him on dates, that Miles is everyone's Audrey. <gasps> that's why they're so perfect together. Do you get this impression that I feel like if he goes on a date, the woman's like, let's just pretend whatever. He's like, absolutely, and takes it way too far. So then of course, Frank and Miles lie to each other, you know, that they're fighting him off with a stick. And I wrote, these poor men. <laughs> these. These poor men. And then Murphy enters with Jim. And now I know that we're both very good at colors, but I feel like you were like a lot of time much better with me about this. So I literally wrote, ask Jesse this. <laughs> is this a chartreuse <laughs> that, that, that Murphy is wearing? I wrote chartreuse. Yes? I wrote chartreuse. Okay, because I know that you've mentioned chartreuse before and I, 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 it's, a, it's a color that I always confuse. And so I was like, this is a Jesse mm -hmm. color. I need to ask Jesse. But I Googled it. <laughs> And I, I also found another color called honeysuckle yellow. <laughs> sure, uh, absolutely. <laughs> Which is also it's very a cool. yellow with a little bit of green in it. Yeah. I laugh so hard that you say it's a Jesse color. I understand why you say yeah, yeah. that, but like I could not. No, I would never wear it either. I meant like, that it was a knowledge Jesse question. Look that good. Like I, yeah. like again, like I got, oh no, no. I totally know. That's why I'm laughing because I'm like, I know what you meant by that. But it like, I, I wish, I wish it was truly my color because what a color. Right? What a standout, unique color. And as a blonde. Just, it's fantastic. Yeah. And then the necklace has like some browns in it and it's just mm -hmm. ugh, perfect Murphy Brown outfit. She's talking to Jim. She's worried about Corky. She feels that Corky's gone crazy. Murphy stopped by Corky's house this morning. She wasn't even there. And so she's worried about her. The gang wants to know what's going on. And, and Jim informs them that Corky ran off with the beatnik painter who hangs around at her house all the time. 
specifically the beatnik painter man. <laughs> this, uh, that's right, and I wrote that too. She ran <laughs> off with the beatnik painter man. Listen, this episode has some really great Jim facial expressions. Oh, they're so good. And I don't know if it's just that like he's sort of easing into the character more, mm -hmm. but like <laughs> there's that great moment where Miles goes, Eldon, you're kidding. And then the look on Jim's face of like, keep your voices down of like, look, like it's so <laughs> perfect. Like, uh, how, what are you doing? Yeah. And, uh, and Murphy says that, you know, she doesn't know what happened. You know, Murphy seemed great at the shower. Everything was fine. After the poker game, the male stripper showed up dressed like a fireman and did the dance of the seven hoses. And then turns to Jim and goes, you should have seen Doris. She was his latter girl. And then again, the look on Charles's face of just like, I don't understand. Oh, that's, oh, what? Like, Oh, Doris, queen forever. Seriously, like what a woman. Oh, she's incredible. What a damn woman. Frank says, don't panic. You know, so she disappeared with Eldon. It's probably not as bad as it sounds. And he goes, oh, man. And then, ding, the elevator opens, and the entire Sherwood family shows up. They're there for a tour. <laughs> to which the gang... <laughs> Are we going to try this? <laughs> yeah. To yeah. which the gang says... Murphy. Frank. Jim. Miles. Murphy. Ding. And then the elevator opens again, and it's Quirky and Eldon. What I appreciate is that Corky is very wrinkled. So, so rumpled. So rumpled. It's and I so appreciate funny. the accuracy of that. This is what I love about good designers and like HMU in costume. Mm -hmm. It is very clear from the way she's rumpled that she was not rolling in the hay. The rumpling would be very different. She was sitting, yes. It's very much tell, a sitting rumpled. Her hair is must, but it's not must in the way that it would be. It hasn't been like reclipped after something. Like it is it is so clear that she's just been out all night. But I love that it's still she's still not perfect. It's it's such brilliant styling. Yeah. And Faith is so good in this episode. Oh, so Mommy, good. Daddy, Kiki, Cookie. <laughs> Eldon is so excited to meet the fam. Oh, buddy. Just swoops in, introduces himself, to which Murphy then quickly swoops in to be like, this is Eldon, the anonymous source. <laughs> it's better if you don't look directly at him, which is hilarious because then the entire like Sherwood clan looks in like different directions. It's, oh my God, that group, like special, so good. special mention for the Sherwood family. They, they are such a unit. Mm -hmm. I want to have been like on the wall while they were all, working together because they like this little group is here for this episode as as a group and they are so good together it's on like the tiny ensemble that that they pull off is brilliant kudos to all of them oh, we forgot to mention that barnett of course directed the episode again and i feel mm -hmm. like it's a testament to him mm -hmm. and i think it's the kind of things that uh, a lot of people take for granted with a director that it seems mm -hmm. like it's invisible but, you know, we're not there and I can't guess, but I, I just can imagine that a lot of this cohesiveness, just because they don't have a, a lot amount of time to get to know each time. other. Yeah, that a lot of that had to do with his direction and how well he knows mm -hmm. comedy for them to yeah, it's like, a, be a unit. Well, for that type of quick turnaround, it is a testament to the director and the set, and then the actors being able to show up and take the note and do mm -hmm. the thing yeah. and communicate with each other. Because a lot of that, like that ability to listen to each other and to go off of each other, that the own that can't be directed that has to be just yeah they need to hear what the director wants he needs to be clear about what he wants and then they need to trust each other and do it and kudos it's collaboration ensemble yeah 
So uh, Corky tells her family that they should go meet her in her office while she, you know, talks with her coworkers. And then the sweetest, funniest little moment is Corky's parents are holding hands and they stop by the coffee island and her mother's like, they sure give her a great deal of responsibility. And her father goes, she must be smarter than we thought. Oh. <laughs> I love that we now know exactly where Corky's office is. That's a down the hall first door on the left. That's a really nice little piece. Because I'm always trying to imagine that area. And I have to say that I feel like, and it's so hard to remember over time, but I feel like they're very consistent that that is the way to Corky's office and that mm -hmm. is the way to Frank's office. Frank's office. Mm -hmm. Jim's office is over close by the elevators. You'd come mm -hmm. in through there, I think. And I think that's such important stuff to, to do. It just makes it feel real, real and grounded. Do you mind if I take this moment to uh, comment on the, the quotes that we have from Faith about Corky? Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Well, specifically that whole, she must be uh, smarter than we think she is moment. Lauren found, and I'm, I'm so glad she did, from the LA Times, Faith talking about Corky not being a ditz. Yeah, let's read those. Those are great. And she says, quote, some people have described her as a ditz, but I don't think she's that, said Ford, who played the blonde beauty queen turned television magazine, news magazine reporter. Quote, she's an unedited person. She says what comes to her mind. She's bossy. She loves to throw her opinions at people. She offers advice that no one wants, but she's not dumb. One thing is that she has no sense of humor about herself. She takes everything so seriously. That is such a a more respectful and graceful way of this is that thing about you have to love your character when you play them. Exactly. Yeah. This is a non-judgment of her. And if other people want to assign something like, quote unquote, dits to it, that says more about them than Corky herself, because this is something, you know, we've talked about since we started the podcast that I love about her is that she is so much more than just the cliche that you might assume. And that all has to do with the fact that Faith didn't just play her as ditzy. She yeah. gave her all of these things. She gave her a bossiness. She gave her opinions and maybe they're wrong. And the forcefulness with which she delivers them makes people think she's too stupid to realize that she's wrong. But that's actually not how Faith is playing her. And that's what mm -hmm. I love about it. She just, no. she goes with the information she has. And the second she gets new information, she reassesses. Yeah, and I love that she said that it's just that she doesn't have a sense of humor about herself and she doesn't have an edit button. Mm -hmm. And I, I hadn't thought about the sense of humor thing as she takes everything so seriously, which is such an mm -hmm. earnest, young thing to do. Yes. But it also made me think that one of the reasons I'm sure that Quirky doesn't have an edit button is because she's been in an environment in which she is probably the smartest. Mm -hmm. She was the most popular. Mm -hmm. People didn't question her mm -hmm. in her little world. So when she, you know, says those things to Murphy, she really thinks that she's giving her really good advice because yeah. she's given that advice to other people and they didn't question it. Well, and also, I think in many ways, she's the only person brave enough to offer something different to Murphy most of the time. She's like, well, no one else is going to say it, so I should probably say it. Yeah, she's, it's a like, kindness. She's, it's kindness and it's it's a bravery to her. It also makes me think about... The idea of being unedited, I think about when people talk about how to appear stronger in a corporate setting, hmm. this idea that you're supposed to sit there and hold back commentary until you, like that idea of holding power by not speaking, holding power by listening rather than commenting, hmm. by yeah. being an edited person, you give the illusion of power and intelligence. And that's not always true. When you are unedited, you lay everything on the table. And so people are it's easier for people to judge your stance and where you come from. Yeah, it makes her more vulnerable. Mm -hmm. And I love her for that. 
I know. But also going back to the whole, you know, you can't play a character as being stupid, right? You have to love mm -hmm. the character that you're playing. I, I know I've mentioned before, and people who may follow me online know that I've written a lot about Gracie Allen, mm -hmm. who was sort of, you know, looked at as sort of this dumb character. And in fact, it comes from a vaudeville trope called the dumb Dora. Mm -hmm. But George Burns was like, this isn't a logical logic to you. There's logic behind it. If you really think about it, what she's saying makes sense. She's just on her own thought process in her own plane. Mm -hmm. It doesn't make her dumb. She's just thinking about things in a different way. And often she's thinking about them out loud. Gracie Allen played it extremely seriously. I would even refer to Gracie Allen as the first method actor because she was like, well, if it's not real, how can I do this? Mm -hmm. So... I love to hear that from Faith because she's playing it in the right way. She's coming mm -hmm. from a sense of truth. And if if you just played a character as dumb, there would be no depth there. I think the same thing happens with Faith's friend Jane Leaves when she plays Audrey. Yeah. Audrey fully like just breathes in truth into everything she does, no matter how ridiculous it is. So you, when Audrey turns and looks at Miles, you just know something bat shit yeah. is about to come out of her lips but she believes it's and so i forget true. if we mentioned this at the beginning because i was reminded of it watching this video of uh primetime live with the cast in uh, 1990 is that faith was concerned about taking the role because she didn't want to play another mm -hmm. ditzy blonde and diane was like no like she's gonna grow she's gonna be a realized mm -hmm. person so yeah and this episode is part of her growth i love her so much i know so we enter into murphy's office the entire gang I, what i love is they kind of shuffle in behind Corky, like, like a little clown car. <laughs> yes. Um, I believe we both already uh, confabbed about this, but uh, neither of us can read the dartboard. Nope. And I can see there's something on it, yep. and I know it's good. Yeah, so it's probably great. Someone please email us. And Murphy swings around behind her desk. She does not sit. And says, two chairs, sit in them, sit and then speak. And the chairs are Eldon and Corky. Then Miles, Frank, and Jim just line up standing behind them in like the at the angle it's like they're in the principal's office <laughs> truly <laughs> and murphy is just in the interrogation position standing behind her desk and she asks what is going on here they both barely get out the word nothing before miles and frank just swarm in calling bs and jim ever the consummate leader mm -hmm. says hey now he stands behind them puts his hands almost on their shoulders says they should have a chance to explain without us acting like the spanish inquisition and what I love is Charlie does this thing where he slowly and deliberately walks around to stand next to Murphy behind the desk in this like position of authority. Like mom and, says, and dad. Go ahead. Yeah. He's like, hey, we have you. You're going to be OK. And tells him to go ahead. And Eldon calmly begins to say nothing happened. They just talked. And Jim bursts out all caps. Liar, liar, pants on fire. Go away, you awful man. You soiled her and I don't want you here anymore. <laughs> It's so good. So it's because you know, Jim, we know what's going to happen. He seems so calm. We know he's he's going to lose his mind. Yeah. And it's so satisfying. Liar, liar, pants on fire. And Corky says, hey, they have nothing to hide. Eldon behaved like a perfect gentleman. Eldon says that he saw that she was in a weak and vulnerable position and that it would be wrong to take advantage of her. Although the thought did cross my mind on 23 separate occasions. Oh, I love that. It's so, it's so honest it's just, that he was a gentleman. That's what a gentleman does. Courage is not the absence of fear. Mm. It's a being there and acting anyway. Like yes. being a gentleman is not the absence of flaw. It's choosing not to act on the Yes. Flaws. Being a good guy. I love him. And what I love, this little tidbit kills me. He took her to a house painter hangout. 
which we will meet where they, which we will we will find in season three yes. we'll go to the house painter hangout yes. but i love the idea that they just sit there to talk about art and the world <laughs> It's just like what this like I just love the subculture of Eldon's house painter. World, yes, no, and I it's love great. that we get to see it later. Because mm -hmm. you're just like, what is this place? Like he, when the, she talks about it and the way Eldon is, I without spoiling what it eventually looks like, what comes to my mind without that information yeah, that go we for know it. comes later. You just get this idea of this like Cold War Russian basement <laughs> with, you know velvets and dark reds and there's probably like a little bit of smoke maybe a beret like it just sounds like this like cult counterculture movement well, there's definitely a beret <laughs> yeah oh yeah mm -hmm. <laughs> however she says that she sat there with them and she saw that her life and career were too important to give up murphy asks what she's saying and she says the wedding is off everyone just like last episode everyone plays this incredibly seriously mm -hmm. yeah very simply it's beautiful we go from the liar liar pants on fire down to this really simple moment and then will arrives and he opens the door with hi and everyone snaps yeah. hi uh. <laughs> he asks if he's interrupting and jumps back with a little bit of fear and murphy says oh not at all they were just sitting around chatting and this this moment barnett well well crafted she says they were sitting around chatting but we're done now and in that moment she does this dip into her chair as if, oh, she's just been sitting, time to get up. And all of the boys behind her do these like awkward squat curtsies as if they're on the various like furniture and walls available to them in the same moment. And they just flee the office. Oh, God. I went back about three times to rewatch each one of them because I'd seen her dip and I laughed because she was like, I was just sitting, oh, time to go. But then you look in the back and Jim, Frank and Miles are just these weird little crumpled men <laughs> trying to like sit on the, on the, the cabinet, the, the plant. Like it is hilarious. Uh, they're so good when they don't talk, I have to say. Well, and when they talk, but yeah. For, for a show that's so kind of Verbal. erudite yeah. and brilliant and, and clever, the, oh, the physical comedy is so good. We are left in the office with Corky and Will. Will approaches Corky and asks, and says he wants to know what is wrong. He called her all night and all morning. Is something wrong? And Corky says, well, she's been doing a lot of thinking. And she always gets in a lot of trouble when she does that. So she really tries not to. <laughs> Which The self-awareness. My princess. And she says, but she's been thinking that walking down the aisle will be the end of everything. And she says she knows he's a traditional man. And she thought she was an old-fashioned girl. But she loves her career. She doesn't want to settle down when she could be going on assignment to Paris. She says, I've never been to Paris, Will. I've never been a lot of places, and I think I really have to go. Does he understand? I love that line, that, and I think I really have to go. Yeah. And he surprises her by saying that, yes, he does understand. Oh, boy, am I relieved. <laughs> and he says he didn't know how to tell her, but he's been having his own doubts. We now, as... Elder millennials, millennials, Gen Z are all far more used to people saying what he's about to say. But for his age, for this time, yeah, period, I was thinking that too. To say this yeah, big deal. Is so bold. And he says that he's afraid he's going to turn around and realize he's become his dad, working in a job I hate to pay off a mortgage on a house I don't like in a place I'm tired of. I don't want that to happen to me, Corky. And like this whole conversation. It makes me sad knowing what happens. Yeah, right? This conversation is exactly kind of what I want for Quirky. Like, 
they actually have a real conversation about gender roles, about wanting a career, wanting to change what's been laid out for you, doing it together because you both understand, because they both clearly still want partnership. It brings me back to what you said last episode about wondering if they knew where they were going with this relationship oh, yeah. in the next season when they wrote this. Yeah, I wonder because what ends up, I go back and forth between that, right? Because, yeah. and I'm, you know, I'm not as familiar with the later seasons as I am with the first four or five for many reasons, including the fact that I was in college, <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> so I'm sure people will know this better than I do, but I, I feel like also a lot of Will's problem was, is that he was frustrated that he wasn't as successful as Corky. Uh-huh. Even though he got a movie made out of his, his terrible book, mm -hmm. you mostly see him frustrated with not being able to be creative. And I think that's a really brilliant examination of wanting to break down the patriarchy and misogyny that is that has been built within your life and wanting to change these structures but a lot of it still being within you in a in these complicit assumptions and gender expectations that you didn't realize were important to you that place of being like oh i'm actually my wife is more successful than me and that makes me feel gross that is still left over from that very thing that he wanted to buck but that doesn't mean that wanting to get rid of that that life gets rid of it. Like you really have to do a lot of work at it and not a lot of it is just hardwired into your brain. I also feel a lot of Quirky's growth has to do with the fact that these fantasies that she grew up with become mm -hmm. real and difficult. Yep, they are no longer fantasies when you're living them. Like this all of a sudden, I don't have the quote in front of me because I didn't think to talk about it, but Emma Thompson recently got some flack because she came out and said that romantic love doesn't exist. But what she means is, is that there's no, there's no technical happy ever after at the mm -hmm. end of a romantic comedy, that relationships and marriage are hard. That's mm -hmm. what she meant. She meant that, you know, she's fought every day for her relationship, any That's relationship. That's the beginning. It's not the exactly. end. Exactly. And... So I, I'm just thinking about this in the moment from what you're saying is I think that maybe this all did have to happen because every sort of, you know, fantasy idea that that Quirky grew up on gets shattered because of reality, mm -hmm. because it's tough. Relationships are tough. Being a career person is, is tough and and having to forge new dreams, which is what many adults have to do mm -hmm. when you realize that you can't get everything that you want necessarily or that obstacles are going to get in your way and you need to figure out ways to work past them and still be happy. And also the back to, you know, part one of this story, which is that she is not who she thought she'd grow up to be. And so therefore those dreams don't align anymore. The life that she has lived, her life experiences, this job, the people she's around, they have forever changed her. And so therefore, those fantasies that she had will be disappointing because they're not this Corky's fantasies. And that's really hard to reconcile. Yeah. And when we get to the revival, if you think about it, and, and mm -hmm. I guess even technically at the end of the series, of the original series, not only is Corky's life sort of more resembling Murphy's, but mm -hmm. Murphy's the one with the child. And mm -hmm. Corky doesn't have, did seem to have any regrets in that area. She's... She doesn't have children and she loves her career and she's happy. And that is a choice. One of my favorite random things to do is to find videos of people predicting if rom-com couples actually <laughs> made it after the story. Oh, yes. And it's so fun to be like, no, they have terrible communication. That <laughs> yes, that's not going to work out or at all. 
something that this makes me think of is on a lot of long-running shows, I'm thinking of West Wing, Gilmore Girls, these types of shows where much-beloved characters meet a partner too early in the storytelling mm. for... It, it is too early to give Corky her her perfect match. Like, it doesn't, it doesn't matter how much I want her to kind of have this conversation later with somebody else. We're having it now. And the... The TV watcher, the seasoned TV watcher in me, who knows how many seasons there are, and also <laughs> is like, oh, this is, it's only the second season, is like, oh no, this is gonna take a turn because it's just too early to give Cor Corky has so much to grow, that Corky has so much to happen in the story, that like this feels like something that I think we just know as we're watching that Corky is a future Murphy kind of thing. Like we've been watching this since Devil in a Blue Dress. Like we, we all know amidst all the other red flags of just like, oh no, this is probably not going to happen. That it's just from a a writing standpoint, it is too early in the show for this to be Corky's ending, romantic ending. Yeah, and, and conflict is story, so. Yep, so we know it, but it does make me a little sad. So her response to him is that she had no idea he felt this way. And he says he wants them to take chances, travel, do everything in life they've always wanted to do. And he wants to do it together. And she hugs him in glee. And then he pulls her back and says, and I want to quit my job. What? <laughs> and Faith is the queen of the tiny physical record scratch. Yeah. What? <laughs> what? And he said he's always wanted to write the great American novel. And where does it say that the man has to earn the money? He'll stay home and write and take care of the house while she supports them. Which again, love this modern Love take. it. And she says, gee, what an interesting idea. <laughs> <laughs> Which again, that thing of like, oh, maybe we do have some gender norms that we're not necessarily yeah. okay with getting rid of. And she says, let me get this straight. She would go to work every day and he would stay home and try to write a book. And then she leans in and very conspiratorially says, would you also be doing grocery shopping and small errands like going to the dry cleaners? Because then and he says, that's up to them. <laughs> They're free thinkers, rule breakers. But most importantly, they can make this work. And then she, I'm so glad she went back to this. I forgot last episode that she does actually go back to this, which is she says, what about Paris? Yeah. She turned it down and she doesn't want to feel guilty about going to things like that. And he says, don't worry about him. Prove it by going to Paris. And he says, a few thousand miles isn't going to change the way that I feel about you. And she says, oh, Will. And honestly, in my heart, I was like, oh, Will. <laughs> and then they smooch. And then I'm like, oh, this makes me sad. And we cut to just outside Murphy's door where Murphy has been leaning up to the door and listening the entire time. Mm -hmm. And the others are standing around waiting for intel. And she springs back as they open the door. And Will and Corky step out somberly. They have something to tell everyone. We're getting married. And everyone is flummoxed. One of them goes like, what is going on? Every, everyone is flummoxed. And Corky announces that Will is going to quit his job and I'm going to support us. Will's going to make the beds and I'm going to Paris. And Eldon turns away dramatically. Everyone notices. I wrote it the exact same way. <laughs> yeah. it's like, oh. And Corky walks to, over to him and says, Eldon, this is what she wants. And she hopes he can be happy for her. And... Bobby does with just the wobbliest voice. Do you want to do this, Lauren? I do. I hope you have a happy life, and I will use this pain to inspire my greatest work. Man dies on honeymoon. 
ding. <laughs> and he's he's just wobbling the entire time. He's like, let me be the first to congratulate you. He he hopes her happy life is filled with all of the things that you deserve. Don't worry about me. The use <laughs> the of don't the, worry about the me. The use of the elevator ding as a button oh. to so many jokes in this episode is just mwah. It is prime elevator ding. Oh, this episode. It's big elevator ding. And upon the ding, he turns away and walks into the elevator. And then a beautiful blonde woman joins him and smiles and his entire body and face swing toward her glowing and he'll be just fine. Oh, it's the best. It was very <laughs> much, so, a, oh. it fit very Joey Tribbiani. How you doing? It was very, <laughs> hey, hey, how, you doing? how you doing? And what I love is that we don't actually get to see Corky's face in response to this. The elevator doors close and then we cut to an over the shoulder of her to Miles as she's already turned back. So we never get to see how Corky actually feels yeah. about that. Because it's not about that. Miles tells Corky she has to let her camera crew know that Paris is back on. And she says she's so happy that she's finally going. All she has to worry about now are a few wedding details. And she swings to her trusty maid of honor, Murphy Brown, and says she's hoping she can help. And Murphy says, "Ah, come on, Corky. I was fitted for the dress. I gave the shower. If there's much more to this wedding business, I want to be paid. Again, Murphy Brown is a mood. And honestly, I support that. I support her so much. And Corky says, oh, there are only a few more decisions left to be made, like where to have it, what to eat, and who to invite. She knows Murphy will do a great job. She gives her a hug and thanks her. Cut to. Also, I have to add, she says that none of this has been done and they have a week. Uh -huh. What wedding venue doing? is available? I mean, I, I guess they do get a tent. But like, I was, I literally went, what? <laughs> I, I was like, oh, wow. <laughs> like, they could have just used Phil's. As Phil says. As, as we talk about later. So we cut to um, the bullpen. Some time has passed, and we have Murphy's secretary, played by sitcom legend Carol Ann Susie. Oh. You know her voice. You, you've seen her. Her career spans like 40 years. She's mm -hmm. done theater, but I think most people know her from, or in some film, but most people know her from television. I think most people now will probably know her as the voice of Mrs. Wallowitz on Big Bang Theory. I did yeah. not watch that show, but I would know her from I that. Did. She they do a really lovely recognition of her past. I did watch that. And I yeah. I also read a lot about how how fond of her they were and how sad oh, of yeah. losing her. You know, she passed away in 2014 of cancer at 62. It was really really quite lovely the tributes that were paid to her. But even though she's done, she's in Death Becomes Her, she's in The Secret of My Success, she's in My Blue Heaven, but, you know, she's also been in Cheers and Becker and Married with Children and Night Court and just everything in the 80s and the 90s. Seinfeld, she's in a very famous episode of Seinfeld. And it was so great to see her because I think that she's that kind of face. I think we were getting used to a lot of the secretaries that we didn't really recognize. Yeah, good old Judy the secretary, that voice. Judy is in the middle of a divorce. <laughs> Judy is not having a good time. I don't care. <laughs> I can't do her. Be like, I don't care. No, no one can do her. I can't do it. I don't care if it, she's from Brooklyn, by the way, if anyone is shocked. Oh, yeah. I don't care if he's on his hands and knees. The car is mine. The house is mine. Murphy comes out. Judy, the skinny metal rod that turns on the sprinklers and doesn't even have a name, is mine. Judy, and furthermore, if he tries to get custody of the dog, I'll drag his butt across the coals. Make sure you actually use those words. Drag his butt. So, uh, Judy has some issues. I wrote that this, I, this has to be straight out of her audition. If she had one. 
Oh yeah, like literally, it was just like, oh yeah, you've got this like, part. Like it's perfect. She was hired for her. to do exactly that. Like I, I have to imagine Brynette was like, great. Can you just look this direction when you do it? Great, go. <laughs> like, Const- it is just like this is what Carol and Susie does. Comic legend. Murphy pretty much just needs her secretary Judy to know that the caterer calls. She doesn't care as long as it's meat. She's not saying anything to the sleazy tabloids, not even the color of the napkins. Also, I feel like Judy's having a really rough time because she's going through a divorce and all this wedding shit's happening around. Right? Like, people are not considering Judy. I'm sorry. I will step back, but, like, Judy. No, seriously. And and that's why it's kind of great that that's with the secretary. She's so bitter. <laughs> so Murphy has a basket of color swatches, which I believe are, like, kind of a pink and, like, a peach and, like, a purple, like, kind of, like, a yellow. It's, like, Easter colors. Oh, yeah, it's Easter. All I kept thinking of, my colors are peach and bashful. Your colors are pink <laughs> and pink. <laughs> I love that quote so much. So Frank jokingly asks Murphy, you know, what what color are the napkins? And Murphy has had it. She doesn't know the color of the napkins because she's too busy dragging the Sherwoods to a rehearsal dinner at the Sizzler. And this is something interesting. This is a moment we don't usually get with Murphy, which is Frank is shocked that, you know, he that Murphy doesn't love this, that, you know, don't all girls dream of planning a dream wedding. Can confirm they don't. Yeah, I, I didn't either. Ne- I am married. I never imagined my wedding until I had to plan it. As a as a young gal, I imagined I was fighting with swords with my swarthy partner in the woods. I can confirm, not all girls plan a wedding. Yeah, and that's why I thought it was interesting that they juxtapose this with Murphy mm-hmm. as the type that you would think would not have planned Wouldn't. a wedding with someone who I think it's did really when sweet. she was a kid. It's very, very sweet moment, actually. It's very sweet to watch her just, like, melt into this memory. It's really sweet. I, yeah. And, and you know, that's also a testament of there are different people. Like, there are different women. Women are not a monolith. I mean, Let's I, perhaps I, not make an assumption. Exactly. So, uh, Murphy talks about her dream wedding when she was a kid, which was in a big billowy tent, which, it, it's, that's Corky's weddings in a tent. By the river with flowers and candles and a horse-drawn carriage and her future husband, Fabian. (laughs) It's got this longing. It's hilarious, but also this sort of really sweet sort of longing about it. And I was trying to Slash romance novel? Very romance novel-y. I was trying to think of an example to explain to people like who Fabian was. Like what would be a good modern example of that? Would Would it be like one of the Jonas Brothers or something? Oh, I don't know about that. I was also thinking for like our generation, it was probably like the kid from Home Improvement with Timothy Taylor something. I'm sorry, Jonathan Taylor Thomas. Yeah, sorry. I was a little old for that. Uh, I'm like, I'm literally looking at him right now to like. I mean, he he definitely was like with the um, the Elvis craze. Well, he was a teen idol. Like was he was, de- you know. yeah, a teen idol. Um, he's Harrison Ford's age. If that gives people like sort of a sense, honestly. I, I do think Jonas Brothers is a pretty good... Is that a good one? Okay. Pretty good equivalent. And because I'm too old for Jonas Brothers, I was yeah. like, is it? That's why I was but like, no, oh, I, what's the... What you? I was going to say, like, Bieber, Jonas Brothers. Bieber, yeah. Yeah. You know, it de- depending on your generation. Yeah. I think Jonathan Taylor Thomas, had he been a singer? Yes, that's why I was thinking, yeah. But that was the thing that came to my head because I've seen a mm-hmm. lot of uh, entertain- millennial entertainment where, like, he's the name that comes up. So Frank thinks that Murphy should relax and enjoy the wedding stuff, which never happens. Uh, and uh-uh. then we cut to the wedding. Y'all, <laughs> this wedding. This wedding. 
we enter and we are in a wedding tent and it is i would say fluffy spring is the vibe we have white lattice and then white table tent sides mm -hmm. it does feel very springy with everyone's attire we doris who we see in a second is in a very kind of light teal bright light teal great color for her it's gorgeous and sparkly. But the first thing we get to see is coming through the lattice entrance are Audrey and Miles. And they are getting frisked, metal detected with wands. Yeah. It's for those who don't remember the metal detector wands at like security who I don't not sure anybody currently listens to our podcast doesn't remember those. But they're standing in the position that we all now stand in for the body scanners at the airport. They're like wide stance and second position arms are up over their heads and like making a diamond shape like they're they're either being held at gunpoint or they're in a body scanner yes and it's those two and their faces what a gift to all of us and as as they're saying they're finishing up their scans audrey wants to thank miles for asking her to be his date and even though they've been out twice and she turns into carl from part one and says that People know that the person you picked to sit beside you to watch two people make a commitment to each other for all eternity must be pretty special. Yes, and if not for Fraser, he would have married her. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh-huh. Also, this is one of those moments that I just, I love Jane Leaves' accent so much. Yeah. I love her voice so much. The way she says all is just, it's the perfect, it's the perfect accent. She's lovely. And Miles says, yeah, along those lines, no one needs to know this is only their third date. Audrey ever the co-conspirator, gives an, oh, okay, as he guides her into the room. And we all know from having seen Audrey twice at this point, that was the wrong thing to say to her. <laughs> or the right, depending on what you're going for. And they approach amidst the, that way that you kind of mingle when no one's sitting down yet, but you're standing in the aisles of the chair, or in the rows of chairs. Mm -hmm. they, they approach Jim and Doris. I wrote, Doris's sparkly dress is a vision. Oh, what a couple. So they say they've been reminiscing about their own wedding day. And Doris says, yes, it was a lovely affair, but fraught with mishaps. And we will now reenact what they describe. Best man was late. Jim lost the ring. The gazebo collapsed. We were robbed at gunpoint. Bit of a rocky start, but we never looked back. If we had, we would have seen that runaway hearse coming. <laughs> and what I love is the button of that, aside from that line, is yeah. Doris just looks into the distance with she like does. deep regret. She's haunted by whatever happened with that runaway hearse. Their chemistry. Oh, it's a, they're, uh, again, to like the actors, obviously they were directed very well, but these two actors just got it. Yeah, from the get-go. Oh. And I feel like this is sort of kind of a, a, a thing that they never really finished off, per se, or maybe they just abandoned it, obviously, where mm -hmm. they kind of finish each other's sentences about yes. their past. Because it's not the exact same thing, but it's very similar to when we meet them for the first time at, mm -hmm. at Corky's place when they're talking about the history of 1961 as if they're both <laughs> news anchors. Yes. Oh, I love them. But I, yeah, I would have loved if they continued doing that, but I think they, they kind of abandoned that, unfortunately. Now, Audrey takes this moment to say, oh, Miles, soon they'll have some of their own if they could finally agree on the last few details. She shares that she wants a traditional wedding, but Miles wants the guests to dress as their favorite characters from literature, which I have to jump in and say yes. that is in the that is part of the plot of the very first episode of murder she wrote the murder of sherlock holmes ah! the man who was murdered is dressed as sherlock holmes because they all go to a party where everyone dresses as their, as their favorite fictional characters so i'm just saying two of my favorite shows are always linked 
<laughs> she supposes it doesn't matter as long as they're happy, but she hopes he'll reconsider his idea to dress as Captain Ahab. He's such a dark figure. Thank you, Pookie. And then she like jiggles his earlobe. I was trying to figure out is this the, the she first says, time she calls dark. him Pookie or did she call him Pookie when they first met? I feel like this I is the this first is time the she first calls him time, Pookie. And then yeah. he validates it later. Yeah. No, I think this is the start of the Pookie. <laughs> As Miles uncomfortably deals with his earlobe being jiggled, we pan to Phil and Phyllis, who have been standing in the background the whole time. They each take a canopy and a toothpick from the passing waiter. And Phil says, What the hell are these? He says he doesn't remember seeing anything like this before, and they'll never move them. And they start commiserating about how cocktail weenies and beer is what people really want. But did anyone ask them? And Phyllis huskily barks out, 50 years in the restaurant business, and they pass us by. And they, I just love these two so much. Yeah. Again, a pair that just get it. They both simultaneously eat their bites of canapé, and Phil grumbles, oh yeah, now I'm full. <laughs> it's the cocktail hour, Phil. You're never full on one cocktail weenie. Get He's over so it. pissed, and I love it. I love it. He says it out, like, looking at everyone, like, yeah. mm -hmm, oh. if only. That's when I was like, oh, I've missed Phil. He hasn't been in that many episodes. Oh, so good. I want Phyllis's voice so badly, but if I tried it, I would hurt myself. So in that moment, Murphy Brown arrives in her lilac shepherdess glory. It is fluffy. There are tears. There's a hat. There's a choker with a bow. There is definitely a hoop skirt under there, and there are lace gloves. It's the type of costume I'm always dreaming about getting on stage. Like the way Candace swings her hips to make that skirt swish as uh, she lands is brilliant masterful. piece of comedy. The swishing of this, the skirt. Her use of that hoop skirt the entire episode mm -hmm. is that woman clearly played with that thing as long as possible. It was so fun. So the funny thing about this is that. I did not realize until I rewatched this episode that mm -hmm. I did a production of The Last Night of Ballyhoo and they put me in an outfit that looks like this. And I was going to say, this reminds me of every production of five women wearing the same dress I've ever seen. Right? Comic gold. I love wearing a hoop skirt on stage. I love it so much. They're so fun. They're so different than anything else I wear, obviously. So I get a kick out of them and I just wore one in a play that I did. And anytime I could like swing it like a bell, mm -hmm. a la like Runaway Bride, I have such a good time or pull it up to get through a door frame <laughs> you know the secret to getting through a door frame oh what or is it sitting down in a hoop skirt is you pick up halfway through the the hoops like the rings of the hoop yeah you pick it up on one side oh <gasps> brilliant and then you just sit down and lay it down or you walk through the door you're not supposed to pick up both you pick up one side it goes flat off you go well now i know i'm telling you everyone for your hoop skirt endeavors just pick up one side <laughs> So she rounds on a vendor, the man she's been looking for. Oh, We yes. find out eventually that he's Mr. Cheater Florist. But funny enough, he's very familiar. He is. It's one of the two writer cameos and past guest on the podcast, Mr. Stephen Peterman. Mr. Babyface Stephen Peterman, as he lives and breathes. So Steve, Mr. Cheater Florist, uh, has been working on something. He does look like a cater waiter, so it took me a second to realize that he's the florist because he does she look has like a cater waiter, yeah. Me. But she said she just saw the centerpieces on the dinner tables. She ordered 50 white roses on the table, not 49, and he probably didn't think she'd count every single flower. Well, she did, Mr. Cheater Florist. I know he says something about his own performance, but his facial expressions are every 
like no it's great vendor employee who's ever had to deal with a crazy bridal party (laughs) so i believe it steve i am scared of murphy she then storms from there off through the party running into everybody this is a really obscure pull but she's giving me eileen brennan as the widow hubbard in 1986's babes in toyland whoa and it is if you have seen that movie and seen her portrayal of this woman that is exactly the like masculine woman in a fluffy dress energy that it's Candace the first Bergen time you've giving. made a reference that I don't get it's <laughs> this is also it's let me tell you it is accurate that's all I'll say oh I should and also in, oh sorry no I realize no, I should no. also mention that the second writer is Tom Seeley who you see for like a second and he's playing one of the groomsmen yes yeah, yeah. Tom is is a little less front and center <laughs> yes so as she's storming through taking people out with her hoop skirt as she goes uh, she runs into Frank and Frank says he assumes Murphy must be feeling good. Everything's under control. Oh, under control. Has Frank not noticed that the flower girl threw up on the ring bearer that she had to bounce a waiter out of the kitchen who was putting a tape recorder in the brioche and somebody thought they saw Rona Barrett parking cars. She then starts pointing to her skin, saying her nerves are right on the surface. And at that moment, we hear a horse neigh and she just yells at Frank asking if he fed the horses. It is chaos. Absolute chaos. <laughs> And Frank tells her that if anyone should be a wreck, it's him. It's a miracle he fit her into the car. He doesn't think he can do it again. He may have to strap her to the roof. (laughs) And at that moment, look who's here. But Kathleen Sullivan. She enters, not frisked. She enters the tent. And he just says, look how gorgeous she is. Oh, it looks like she's alone. How could that be? Look how gorgeous she is. I love her. I love the fact that he thinks that she's gorgeous because of the whole sidebar you did on the fact that she got such flack for the gray hair and she's yes. got gray hair. And I was she's just stunning. Like, yeah. It's like the little, little, little tufts of gray hair. And it's like, yeah. he's like, she is gorgeous. I will have like, her. He literally has to say, look how gorgeous she is twice. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. how deeply in love with her he is. And he turns and says, Murphy, I have a, a favor to ask. And she says, how am I supposed to get home, Frank? And conveniently, right at that moment, Carl to the rescue. Carl. He says he'd be happy to drive her home. He has his camper. She thinks she'll be fine, but she doesn't think she should get that dress anywhere near a kerosene stove. And tells Frank to go for it. She'll figure it out. And he tells her if he didn't like her so much, he'd marry her. She, Murphy then, as Frank scuttles off to try and romance Kathleen Sullivan, TBD, we will let you know how that goes. She's making her way through the rest of the guests. When she sees a photog trying to crawl in under the tent and she starts stamping at him like he's a rodent saying, get out of here, you garter snake, go and starts stamping at him while he flees out back from underneath the tent. I love how she lifts up that skirt and stamps him. Oh, yeah. Again, the skirt acting. And then she turns around, lets out a ha and does a hop of the hoop skirt and darts out of the reception area. It's just moi. It's the hop that sends the hoop up. That's so good. Now, the next scene is interesting because we are we are in the background or the back room, I should say, some area mm-hmm. where Corky's getting ready. And her mother, who, by the way, I forgot to mention last episode because uh, I forgot, is the grandmother on Full House. Of, so like also like tons of things. I saw a picture. Yeah. and I was like, oh, my God, that's right. Uh, Danny's mom. She's Danny's mom. And the other mother is we learn is Will's mother, but also uh-huh. is Candace Bergen's mother, Frances Bergen, uh-huh. in a very, like, I mean, it's a, 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 not really a cameo, maybe a glorified cameo, but like playing a mother 
is hilarious. Um, she's an actress in her own right. We talked about in a later episode that I was shocked to find out she's an American gigolo because I had not seen uh -huh. it. And what's great is she has a, a funny little moment with her daughter uh, where uh -huh. she gets to kind of threaten her, which is great. It's great. But you can tell that Quirky is not in a good place. Everyone's sort of snapping at her because uh, the mothers, as often is with early married couples, feel that they're not equally getting their time after the honeymoon. I just want to say this for the record. Um, yeah. If either of you are listening, Mom, Angela, I love you both so much. Thank you for being the easiest mothers Aww. of any couple ever in the world. Oh, that's so sweet, Jesse. Literally, they were angels. We had to ask them to be more in the way because they were so kind and easy <laughs> to work with. I love them so much. Anyway, uh, back to our conversation. They weren't this headache that Corky is getting. In complete opposites. What complete angels? opposite. So uh, Murphy kind of tries to usher them out. And, and I, I wrote that the two mothers take Corky's hand like she's a damn wishbone. They're going to break her in half. I know. And her mother wishes her the best of luck. And Will's mother pretty much says, if you turn my son into a drunkard, I'll kill you. It's so good. <laughs> it's so good. It's so good. That's one of my favorite lines of the entire episode. It's and this so, episode is gold. And it's great delivery and with the Southern accent of like, you know, I'm oh. going to say this like it's just a very sweet thing. But don't you dare kill my son. And then when she leaves, she turns to Murphy and she goes, you know, there are only 49 roses on my table. <laughs> Blanche Dubois. And then Murphy goes, I got your extra rose right here, lady. So uh, love, love a little wink. So Corky is very upset. It's also the first time I noticed watching this episode, maybe because it's such a great copy and I watched it a lot on reruns, but there's like a blue sort of like under tool thing yeah. going on with the white. Yeah. Like it's very cool. I love it. It's not a pure white. When she said, I was like, is that green? Is it blue? I love it. It's like, it makes it sort of like shimmer where you go, oh, it's kind of blue. I'm going to call it pearlescent. Oh, I love it. And, you know, Corky doesn't know she can do this. You know, her, the, her, the press is here, the family is fighting. And then we hear this, this sound and Murphy goes, helicopters. Just the way she says helicopters is so like, there's Intense. five different meetings behind it. Like, I can't believe I didn't think of it. Those vultures, which she eventually says. Mm -hmm. And so Murphy goes out of the little Murphy room. Murphy is literally at war. Yes, waving the hat, you know, get away, you vultures. You're not getting one lousy picture, which is like, well, now they are Murphy because they're going to have pictures of you being totally irate. Like the best pictures in the world. She's pulling an Alec Baldwin. Yep. She says she has a bazooka and she's not afraid to use it. And then Corky screams at Murphy, you know, to stop it, to come back in. You know, Corky is just really, really sort of worried, but... Murphy's like, she put a lot of blood, sweat, and tears into this wedding, and she's going down the aisle if Murphy has to drag her. And then her two sisters come in in the same outfit as Murphy, but in different colors, saying that there's a fight going on because their father called Will's father a cheap bastard. And then Corky thinks this is a big mistake. And then Murphy's face just sort of drops, and she puts her hand. Like, again, like we've talked about, Murphy, when it comes down to it, always has Corky's back. And then we cut to... We are back in the tent, in the wedding area. People are actually now seated. We have definitely got the impression that a lot of time has elapsed and people are looking a little restless. However, most importantly, Frank is sitting right behind Kathleen Sullivan. Yes, <laughs> like, he is. They're both on aisle seats and he's sitting right behind her doing that really fun thing where someone kind of just like speaks over your shoulder the whole time as if they're next to you. 
And he says, Kathleen, how can you say it isn't going to work? You haven't even given it a chance. Kathleen says, Frank, when a man opens a conversation saying that he has a higher TBQ than Bart Simpson, it doesn't bode well. And I wrote, her voice is incredible. It's really incredible. Oh, she says that? I was just like, oh. Like her voice alone makes her sexy. Truly, I like, I had to stop and go, wow, I get it. It was like when I went and saw Bruce Springsteen at the Apollo mm. in 2011, 12, 13, somewhere around there. And I'd always, you know, loved the music, knew family that loved him, friends who loved him, saw him in performance. Because it was that thing of being like, oh, like Rod Stewart is a sex symbol for this generation. And sure, Bruce Springsteen, sex symbol for this generation. It was like, but I could be his child. So whatever. Went and saw that and I was like, oh, oh, I get it. Still a sex symbol. <laughs> With Kathleen Sullivan, I was like, oh, my. Jersey. I had such a flutter in that voice. <laughs> what a dame. And Frank says that he knows he pushes hard sometimes, but that's just because he's a sensitive guy. He pauses and says, you know, I wept openly during Field of Dreams. <laughs> and Kathleen does this wonderful, like, kudos for somebody who's not an actor performing. Yeah, she's she really good. She takes wonderful, steadying breath. <laughs> and then turns back and says that she's going to count to three, and then she's going to call security. He laughs and says that she's bluffing and then pauses and says, you know, that red Corvette outside is mine. One. Okay. Okay. And as he walks away down the aisle, he meets up with Carl and Carl asks how it's going. And he says, she wants me. And Carl laughs in his face and says, yeah, right. <laughs> and as Frank dejectedly continues down the aisle to a, his actual seat, we see Miles and Audrey sitting in their seats and Audrey sits forward and turns to Miles, gazing at him. And this sweet Audrey, again, these wonderful moments where I'm like, oh, you cartoon character. I love your deep heart so much. And she tells him that she's been working up the courage to tell him. She just wants to say, she says, quote, well, I'm not really sure why you asked me here today. She says she doesn't really think of herself as anyone special. Hmm. She says, but you, you're very special. So smart and so handsome. I've never met anyone like you. I guess what I'm trying to say is, I know I'll never be very important in your life, and I can accept that, but I wish it were different. <coughs> also, Jane leaves, like, the, the, I said it way faster than she did. She does it in such a, like, beautifully kind of thoughtful, slower pace, because she's just working her way through the, it's so lovely. And Miles is just staring into her eyes while she's saying this. And you could tell he's kind of, he's doing, Grant's doing the wonderful thing of like, he could either be moved or he could be unaffected. We're not, it's that perfect like sitcom acting of like, I don't know which way this is going to go right now, mm -hmm. but he's clearly not expecting what happened. And so as he considers, he reaches out and takes off her glasses. And instead of doing the 1990s, oh my God, without her glasses, she's beautiful. <laughs> Jane leaves, does this squint. Oh, yeah. The second he takes them off, that just makes her look so bizarre. The great is that so he blind. mirrors her and does the same exactly. thing when she takes his glasses so, off. So they're squinting at each other. Which is what I, I was about to describe. Sorry, so okay, she's okay. immediately squinting like this like naked mole rat. And then as blindly, she reaches up to take his off and he's squinting like a naked mole rat. And they gaze blurrily at, at each other through their eyelashes and Miles does, and oh, Pookie. And they embrace in this like makeout that sends her like sideways back to so her elbows. And they, like they're like folding over the back of the chair to have this 
passionate kids. And, and maybe it's remind incredible. people that they were dating at this point, the actors. Yes. And so they're yeah. really making out. Like, oh, not yeah. a stage kiss. They are really making out. No, when we, when you cut to the, the next shot, <laughs> yes. which is over them at, at Murphy standing at the podium or like at the stage, they're like straight up just making out. Which is great because it fits the line where Murphy's like, yes. Miles! Miles! Because so, Murphy comes out and she's asking for attention multiple times and finally goes, Miles! And they both guiltily re- return their glasses to each other and sit forward to focus on what's happening oh, and they are rumpled. But do they return their glasses to each other? No. They switch their glasses, <laughs> which is such an old trope, but it's so fantastic. They return their glasses oh, to each other. <laughs> there you go. Sorry about that. Yes. No, it's perfect. They're each wearing each other's glasses and it's adorable. It's so cute. I also really, I love the, again, I think that they're perfect for each other. And I think that they have the same prescription because I think they're the same kind of blind. Yes, probably. <laughs> I've decided. Yeah. And Murphy, now that they've, return to normalcy says that she is here to explain the delay we're still hearing the helicopters by the way they're still going overhead and she says but first everyone looks so nice why don't you give yourself a hand come on (laughs) and we just cut to the audience who's just no bites no bites and she says okay getting to the point she has a very difficult thing to tell them but there isn't going to be any wedding the bride and groom have been having some problems they've already left for their respective homes to do some thinking they appreciate everyone's understanding. And then she just sits there. Have a nice day. Mm. And we just got to the audience looking flummoxed. This episode is really good at doing the sitcom fake out. Yes. Because they've established so well that, that they're both okay with it. Which mm-hmm. I like with Will being like, oh, I don't want that either. Because then it's not supposedly like sad, you know, like, oh, yep. well, he was okay with it. She's not leaving him. She's not a bad person kind of a thing. But you, be- I well, think that you totally believe it. Especially because it's the end of the season. So we're like, oh, so they're not marrying her. Yeah. Like, okay, so that's the season end is like, yeah. okay. But then we cut to. Mostly everyone's gone, but the band is still there. Frank and Murphy are alone. Frank announces that Jim and Doris are outside waiting for the tow truck. <laughs> the weddings, they do not do well at weddings, the two of them. They don't. Bad wedding, happy life. Murphy tells Frank they are doing the right thing, and Frank says that they should go, but Murphy says that she has one more thing to do, and she tells the band to start, and she says one of my favorite lines of the episode, which is, Will and Corky brought the heart. I thought I'd take care of the soul. It's so sweet. It's so it sweet. I love it. She's such a softy. She's really a softy. And then, ladies and gentlemen, the beginning of Get Ready happens, and the damn temptations come out. What a what a finale. What a damn finale. And it dawned on me watching this that CBS took great advantage of their contract with the temptations. Because uh-huh. and we've talked about them before, but, you know, there used to be this thing in the 80s and 90s where, you know, the season would be about to happen and they have these sort of packages where all of the new cast members of the new shows and the old shows would, like, sing a song or do a thing. I, there was actually there was a whole viral thing where an, a 70s ABC version of this got very popular, which uh-huh. was amazing. It was like, look at all these people. And so they had the whole theme of the season was get ready for CBS. <laughs> And we will put links to all these videos. It'll uh-huh. also be on the social media, so you should check it out. But it's uh, 
Oh, get ready for CBS. So they, they use this to the hilt for next season. Just to give people a sense, we've talked about the Temptations a lot. They've also changed throughout the years. So we have, in this version of the Temptations, we have Melvin Franklin, Richard Street, Ron Tyson, Otis Williams, and Allie Woodson, who are uncredited. I guess everyone just knows of the Temptations. Yeah. And they sing this fantastic version of Here Comes the Bride, which I think I still have memorized. <laughs> yeah. It's very catchy. It is. And Murphy sways back and forth to the music with her hoop skirt. <laughs> yep, ringing that thing like a bell. <laughs> and they come in, they sing, here comes the bride. And uh, they sort of help Corky down the aisle. Then from the back, Will comes in. It's so well choreographed um, and cut together. And then Will comes in in his sort of white a jacket and black pants. I guess that was sort of a Southern thing they're going for. I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. And then the priest comes in and then they, they come up to the aisle and they're gonna get married in private. Yay! They look so happy. What's also great is that Frank has to yell, the temptations, just in case someone didn't know. Just in case. <laughs> I mean, that's how it works. Also, I forgot to mention last season that um, the actor playing Will has married other famous people, including on his soap opera, which I mentioned, he married Meg Ryan's character. And I had totally forgotten, he married Joe at the end of Facts of Life. Oh, yeah. Oh, he's man. he's the married marriage guy. He is marriage guy. He's marriage guy. Some people are I die and everything guy. Some people are marriage guy. He's marriage guy. And so that's the end of season two. And... What a spectacular ending of season two with the damn Temptations. And oh, so hopeful. I found an article that apparently in between takes, Diane English got to sing with the Temptations. I would if it was my show. I'd be like, hi, this is part of your contract. Yes, hello, I would I'm like sure they to. were actually also just very nice. She said, they handed us the microphone and we started to sing a version of Here Comes the Bride. It was really awful, but it was fun. <laughs> <laughs> That's called karaoke and we love it. We do. Childhood dream. I also found a quote from around this time where Tom Fontana, who we've mentioned is who Frank Fontana is named after, also a tremendous television creator in his own right, Homicide Life on the Street. They went to college together, and he described Diane English as a cross between Dorothy Parker and Mother Teresa. Yeah, that tracks. Yeah, I'll take it. Any last thoughts about the last the finale of season two? I am so fascinated by all the things that are set up that either happen later or crash. Mm. Like it is so, in, especially relationships. Yeah. But it's interesting how many things that I think of as kind of hallmarks of these like early and mid seasons are all part of this, ep like, yeah, this little two-parter. It's really, really fascinating. It's such an excellent end of season because it launches a bunch of things. It solidifies some, th it's just, it's, it's real. It's just such good writing. Like this, this episode is. These last two episodes are just such good watching. Yeah, it does for Corky what I feel like the end of season one did for Miles. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So we didn't have time to really talk about Janet Carroll, who plays Doris when she first appeared, because we had a fantastic guest. But wanted to take a time to sort of talk a little bit about Janet. She is definitely a fan favorite, I would say, as well as a favorite of ours. Oh yeah. So Janet is actually from Chicago. And she's a trained theater actress. She's also a trained singer. She put out a lot of jazz albums. She was on Broadway in Little Women mm -hmm. with uh, Sutton Foster. 
she had a very wide ranging career, but I think a lot of people, just like with Carol Ann Susie, will know her as this sort of television veteran, right? She was, I think, other than Murphy Brown, more people would know her as the boss on Married with Children. I think also, which a lot of people are surprised about, as I mentioned, she's the mother in Risky Business. I think that's the other big thing I know her from. Yeah, same. But she did a lot of theater in Kansas City throughout the 1960s. And Chicago. In Chicago, yes. Uh, she was a first soprano with the Canterbury Choir Society in Carnegie Hall. And something that I had forgotten about until Charles had recently passed away was that she and Charles played husband and wife again on Allie McBeal. Mm-hmm. I love that. I wonder if Charlie recommended her because they, he knew that they had great chemistry or it was, you know, someone, the casting director or the people behind Alan Cabeal really loved Murphy Brown. But it's really loved to sort of see them in sort of this dramedy together. Something also that I found was interesting was that Carol, C-A-R-R-O-L-L, is not her original surname, but her middle name, C-A-R-O-L. But unfortunately, Janet did pass away in 2012 of cancer. She was 71. And she always definitely played a, characters with a lot of status I would say right like people who were like bosses oh, and yeah. oh, uh, had yeah. a lot of great a lot of gravitas but I really feel like the best thing that I we ever saw her in was was this oh she was also on Melrose Place I think people would probably know her on from that uh, she played Kimberly's mother I think one of my favorite things about Janet Carroll is you mentioned her as a soprano she had a three and a half octave vocal range wow and you don't expect that when you hear her speaking voice. Yeah, because it's she sounds like I would assume an alto. Yeah, and so like that's such a great thing about like speaking voice has nothing to do with what you can actually sing when you're using your correct registers. And mm -hmm. so the idea that this woman that we know is this kind of alto, snarky, casual, relaxed voice can actually sing up to first soprano and was operatically trained is just so cool to me. Her voice is incredible. Yeah, no, she's pretty great. And our our favorite Doris. No offense to any other Dorises. Mm -hmm. But she is, she is Doris. Yes, she will always be Doris. And we'll see you next time for another edition of FYI, the Murphy Brown Podcast. Mm -hmm.